This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Good afternoon to you. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, it's good to be back at our normal time on Saturday. Yes. You know, it's good to be back in the groove here. How I are like you it. doing? Not bad. Not bad. We've uh, dog update. Uh, Tilly came off of hospice and is now back on hospice. Um, you know, we're, we're headed out for a family vacation and she's coming along for a big, long bucket list week at the beach coming up. So I'm super excited about that. Okay, and for those who maybe haven't listened before, <laughs> Tilly is your your foster dog, correct? Yes, correct. And she has mammary cancer, and um, it's been spreading a little bit. So uh, we we put her back on hospice now, and she's that, that will be it. So um, excited to bucket list with her and the time that she has left. And you know, it's actually a timely topic. We're we're going to be talking about hospice today. <laughs> we are going to be talking all about hospice, and this is something that uh, is it's a, always an important conversation, and it's uh, it's a pretty in depth one as well. So we are very pleased to welcome onto the show, Nikki Martin. Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Nikki, maybe you can start off by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself, how you got started in hospice. I know Nikki's a near dear friend of mine, um, but want everyone to know a little bit more about you. So how did you get started in hospice and what is your background? Okay, well, I came to hospice in 1999 after being a nurse for less than one year. Um, I was touched when I was in my senior year of nursing school by a hospice nurse who came in to do a guest lecture on pain and symptom management and end-of-life care, and I literally was sitting in the front row of the classroom looking at this hospice nurse with her aura around her, and I said to myself, I want to be just like her when I grow up. And sure enough, you know, right out of nursing school, I got um, solicited to join a local hospital in their ICU. They were trying a preceptor program. And after four or five months of working in the ICU, seeing the things that we were doing to keep these poor souls alive and really not allowing them to die with some peace and dignity, I went right to the local hospice and I said, this is the kind of work I want to do. So that's how I came into hospice. And I've pretty much done every job that a hospice nurse can do and then eventually made my way into management. I did some time in education and then got got into quality and compliance. And now I serve um, the organization as a member of the executive team. So very happy to have landed where I did. That's a great background and story, quite quite depth. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit and, and kind of dive into this conversation about hospice. There's so many misconceptions. I think that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things people will say, oh, I'm going to hospice, not I'm, you know, coming on to the benefit or whatever it may be. But the language is always a little funny. Um, I think there's a lot of people that think your hospice is a nursing home or um, you're going to a physical location. Um, so, Nikki, what is hospice? really and let's Uh, let's start there at the basics yeah and it's funny you mentioned that Mary because when I tell people I work for hospice they said oh what hospital are you with (laughs) and I'm like no it's not hospital so hospice is really more it's not a place Mm -hmm. it's a modality of care 
and hospice is really meant for people who are approaching that last stage of their life. It's meant for people who have what we call a terminal prognosis or six months or less um, expected life. And it's, it's really, it's a movement, you know, and it was something that was introduced to the United States in the 1970s from England. That's where the hospice movement started. Um, and it was originally first provided just by volunteers. Can you imagine, wow. you know, how a program could survive just working with volunteers? And then Medicare created the Medicare hospice benefit back in the early 80s. I think it was 1983 or so. So it's really, it's different from other post-acute care settings in healthcare because the patient is normally one person, right? Mm -hmm. And with hospice, it's the whole family unit. So it's the patient and those surrounding the patient that love that patient and are caring for that patient, which makes it very unique. Um, And it is very much patient-centered care, but also realizing that those that are caring for this patient have a lot of needs as well. You know, there's a lot of anxiety, the, uh, uh, you know, can I do this? Can I take care of my grandfather in my home until he passes? So Mm -hmm. it's really something that we do focus on um, the whole family unit, which I find fascinating. And, And also you have to tailor the care to that situation. You know, not everyone has access to you know, different things, or um, there's deficits in the family, whether it's, you know, I don't, I've never given medications before, then we have to figure out a way to help the family be more comfortable with giving those medications. And then some houses you might walk into, the patient may be a nurse or a physician, so they're very used to giving medications or taking medications. So it's really tailoring the care um, to the patient in their situation. Diving in a little bit more on the setting piece, you mentioned home, or and you've also mentioned the hospital, and we know that a lot of people think there's an actual place. Where is the care provided for hospice? What are the different settings that you can receive hospice in? Well, hospice is going to occur wherever you live. Hmm. So it can be in a residential home, a boarding home, an assisted living facility, a skilled nursing facility, and sometimes it is provided in a hospital or um, Transitions Life Care does have a hospice home, which is meant for patients with symptoms that just cannot be managed at a lower level of care, which would mean they cannot be managed at home. Maybe it's a patient that needs IV medications that we can't do in the home setting. So hospice is really where it occurs wherever the patient is. Wonderful. You know, we were talking briefly about the prognosis and six months or less to live. And I think a lot of um, patients and families out there are like, oh, I'm not I'm not quite there yet. I, I, I may live longer than that. I don't want to sign up for hospice because what if I live longer than that? So what can you tell them about that piece of it? If, if someone lives beyond six months, are you still able to receive hospice? And, and how long does the benefit period go on for? Yeah, that is a concern for a lot of people. And I think it's also, Mary, what keeps people from Mm -hmm. enlisting or enrolling in hospice when their physician may first broach the subject thinking, well, I'm not even close to that. But really, you know, the the prognosis, and again, prognosis is the physician's best medical, with their medical expertise and experience, their best guess is, do I think this patient will still be here six months from now? Mm -hmm. In Medicare, even understands how hard it is to prognosticate because what they've done is they've created hospice benefit periods. 
So when a patient is first enrolled in hospice, the benefit period is for 90 days. And then after that 90 days is up, the hospice patient would have to be recertified by the hospice physician, and then they would go into their second 90-day benefit period. So now we're up to the six-month mark. At that point in time, the recertification periods become shorter in length, 60 days. However, Medicare allows patients to have an unlimited number of benefit periods. So as long as when that recertification time comes up, the hospice physician can do a review of the record. They may visit the patient themselves or a nurse practitioner may be visiting the patient to do what we call a face-to-face encounter, which is you have your eyes on the patient assessing them. As long as the physician feels that today when I'm going to recertify the patient, I still feel the life expectancy is measured in up to six months. So it's not like when the six-month mark comes, we cut you loose. That's not at all how this works. But it is um, nice that Medicare recognizes that prognostication is not always, it's not an exact science, and that some patients live beyond that because of the tremendously wonderful care they're getting from their loved ones. So attentive and that kind of thing may have somebody um, get a little bit more life left because of that extremely wonderful care they're getting in their home. One more quick question before we go to a break. In, in your experience, have you seen people stay on the benefit for a very long time, or have you seen people even discharge from hospice? Well, it's very rare that people stay on a very long time, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how we're defining that. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the average length of stay for hospice, um, I haven't looked at data up recently, but I'm thinking it's maybe in the 80s, 80 days on average is how long someone stays on hospice. So when the benefit is meant for six months, you know, is there time before that 80 days that that family really could have used the support and it really would have benefited them? I think too, there's an awful lot of people who are patients who die within the first week or two, Mm -hmm. which is equally, um, difficult for the family, like not much time to prepare them. And, you know, the interdisciplinary group works together. And by that, there's a team that takes care of the patient. You know, it's consisting of a nurse and a social worker and, you know, a spiritual care counselor. Some hospices call them um, pastoral care or chaplains. Um, We also have volunteers. Um, So there's a lot. And then the hospice physician, whoever the team physician is, so that kind of incorporate that is the core team for hospice. So, um, yeah, it, far far too often patients don't get that much time on hospice. That's far more common than someone with a really long length of stay. We are speaking with Nikki Martin. Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and the Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care. And we're talking all things hospice right now, what it is, what it isn't. And we're going to continue our conversation with Nikki right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. 
Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Nikki Martin, and Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and also the Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care, and we're talking all things hospice today and uh, Mary, we're going to make sure that we cover the, the caregiver perspective mm-hmm. here when it comes to hospice. I think that's a, a, a really good perspective to think about. And I know that's a conversation I had with my dad um, and talking about my grandfather, who we talk about in the show a bit. Um, and, you know, the caregiver perspective, you you have to worry, like, what if something gets worse? What if I can't do this anymore? How how do I continue the care? And and thinking out in the future, it's really hard to do and, and think about how, um, how it looks maybe further down the line. So, Nikki, what if a caregiver gets to a point where it's just, out of their hands and they can't control it at home anymore? Are there different levels of hospice care that you could talk us through? Absolutely. Uh, So to be a Medicare-approved hospice provider, the provider must be able to um, give four different levels of hospice care to all the hospice patients. The first one is called routine home care, and that's basically the hospice patient living wherever they call home who is not having acute symptoms at the moment. Um, And then the payment rate for that for Medicare is lower than the other levels of care. And then say the family is just exhausted and they cannot provide care. You know, the patient may be keeping them up at night or maybe they have a really important event that they had planned, someone's wedding or something of that nature, and the family really wants to be there, and yet they're, you know, really busy providing care to their loved one. What hospice can provide is what we call a respite. So that's the second level of care. Respite occurs in a facility. Um, There's certain criteria for what kind of facility the respite can be held in. We um, do quite a bit of our respites at Transitions Life Care at the hospice home. And basically, the hospice provider has to pay to transport the patient to the facility where they will be getting respite care for a five-day respite. And this is a tremendous benefit to families because it gives them a break. Uh, caregiving can be very overwhelming, especially for a lay person. You know, this is something they've never done before. Um, and the respite, like I said, you, normally hospices interpret the Medicare regulations that a hospice can occur maybe once per benefit period, but it's really on a case-by-case basis. Um, sometimes if a family is asking for a lot of respite time, it might be that it's maybe it's time to find placement for their loved one instead, Mm -hmm. and hospice would also help walk people through that. Um, But it is a wonderful benefit. And when we respite patients at our hospice home, families can stay overnight with the patient. They can sit at the bedside. They can spend as much or as little time with their loved one. You know, if they they get to go to some event far away, you know, that's okay. Your loved one is in really good hands. The third level of care is called general inpatient general inpatient is meant for when those symptom the symptom burden might be so high and it might be so difficult to manage the symptoms that hospice will transport the patient to the again we use our hospice home sometimes gip level of care is what we call general inpatient we we use little acronyms for everything (laughs) but the gip level of care can happen in a hospital different facilities that we might have contracts with 
But again, it's meant for when the patient is having symptoms that cannot easily be managed at home. And the GIP level of care can continue as long as the symptoms are still not under control. We're having to change medications. We're having to deliver them via intravenous, which is something that normally isn't done in the home. Um, so that level of care can last as long as those symptoms are being managed. Once they're, once they're managed and we have a plan of care that can be resumed at home, then the patient would be sent back home, wherever that is. And then the fourth level of care is called continuous care. It's very similar to general inpatient where there are symptoms that can't easily be managed at home, but this would occur in the home with practitioners at the bedside. Um, and it's usually done by registered nurses and LPNs. We also can have aides help us with continuous care, but this is where we bring the care right to the bedside, and that, again, would last as long as the symptoms are still out of control until we get them under control, and then we, we, re, we would resume or revert back to the routine level of hospice care. Wow. So if all of the hospices are required to provide these levels of care, and it sounds like similar services, similar care, how would a caregiver know which hospice is the best one to choose? Or how, how do you go about navigating choosing a hospice? Well, the nice thing is consumers can be very savvy with the Internet. Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which we call CMS, they publish quarterly scores on their Care Compare website. Uh, they refresh the scores from time to time, d- depending on what the reporting period is. But the interesting thing about this, and you can just um, Google CMS Care Compare or Care Compare for Hospices and find it very easily. And the website just asks you to put in the city and state where you, you want to receive care or actually where the hospice is located. And then there's a drop down for what kind of care are you looking at? And it, it has different options like hospital, skilled nursing facility, and you pick the hospice drop down. And then you type in the name of the agency. And the, there's two different scores plus a star rating now, which is very new for um, the Care Compare website. So what they do is the the first score that they're going to show you is relating to something called the hospice item set. And these are um, metrics that Medicare said are very important um, that we measure at the start of care to show that we are bringing these patients on and addressing these very important needs at the very start of care. And then there's also another score they report for your Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems, and it's a survey. We have shortened that to the CAHP survey, C-A-H-P-S, and that survey is done after the death of a patient. The survey is sent to the person who's listed as the caregiver or the person who knows the patient the best, and that gathers data on how well did we take care of your loved one? Did we train you on symptoms? Would you be willing to recommend this hospice? You know, how would you rate this hospice? So those two measures you, you would look at, and from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the star rating is very new. So just, I think it was just last month, we're for the first time seeing hospices be giving, given a star rating, um, which is very exciting. And that does help differentiate when you're trying to choose a hospice. I would look for the one with the highest quality scores, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's something everyone wants. You mm-hmm. know, you just don't want the care. You want really good care. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So why would why would CMS put these two measures in place? What's the difference between them and, you know, is one more important than the other? Well, I think it depends on, um, it, it's an opinion type thing. I personally feel like I would be more interested in what other folks had to say about that particular agency. So I would say the CAP survey data is something that's more important to me. Um, the CAP survey has to be administered by a third party, so it's, there's no bias in it, and every hospice uses the same survey questions. Um, and it's not, not every single family gets a survey. When you work with a vendor, which we have to work with an independent vendor to administer that survey, um, they use a meta, uh, mathematical calculation to figure out how many surveys they have to send out in order for us to have a response rate that is meaningful. Um, so again, and, and that survey really looks at communication with the family. Were you getting timely help? You know, did we treat your loved one with respect? And did we address emotional and spiritual needs and support you in that? You know, it also looks at, did you get help for pain and symptoms? You know, did we train the family to care for the patient? And again, they look at the rating of the hospice and then the willingness to recommend the hospice. Now, the hospice item set, which is really a data collection tool that was developed by CMS, and we pull information from the electronic medical record, um, some electronic medical record software has been developed so that you you will get the top score mm -hmm. if you follow along in the EMR. And the measures that they're looking at are, you know, patients who are treat, being treated with an opioid, are they also put on a bowel regimen? Because as everyone knows, any kind of opioid medication can cause um, constipation. They look at, are you doing a good pain screening and are you doing a thorough pain assessment? Are you are you assessing people and screening them for shortness of breath and then treating them for that? They're looking at beliefs and values. Have they been addressed? And then they're um, also looking at visits in the last days of life. Mm -hmm. So to me, uh, that's wonderful. Did you do all these things? But if the EMR makes it foolproof, I don't know that that really makes me feel like, oh, that's the score that I really want to dive into and look at. I think I'd be more interested in what other pa patients and families, uh, what they experience. So. I, I completely agree. I think word of mouth is a very important thing when you're thinking about a healthcare provider. I want to dive in a little bit more after the break about other things that people should look for when choosing a, a hospice provider. I know that there's things like accreditation and other services and programs like grief, um, grief support. And we honor veterans, which my grandfather has coming up next week, which I'm really excited about. So I want to dig in a little bit more there um, and, and keep you on for another segment, Nikki, if you're around. I'm around. All right. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to doing that in just a bit. We are speaking with Nikki Martin. Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and also the Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care. And we're going to continue our conversation on all things hospice right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. 
If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680, WPTF News Talk Traffic. I am Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, and our guest on the line is Nikki Martin. Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care, and we are talking about hospice, what it is, what it isn't. And Mary, we're just having a conversation right now about it's important to know what to look for mm-hmm. when you're deciding what to do with hospice because, uh, one, it's a it's a very important decision, but two, um, as we've discussed, there's so much misinformation. It's hard to know what to look for, and I, I, I think this conversation has been enlightening to know what information is out there for us to review. Absolutely. I think Nikki did a great job exploring the internet with us and try to navigate what you can be looking for. So is there anything else that our listeners can be keeping their eyes out for when choosing a quality hospice? Um, Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, accreditation, I think, is kind of like the gold seal that shows that you are not only meeting the Medicare rules for hospice, that you're also achieving the standards that are set by the accreditation body. Um, Those are always a little bit higher than what the government requires as a minimum. Um, Not all hospices have to be accredited, and there are several different accreditation organizations. So um, you might have heard of Joint Commission. They usually accredit hospitals, but they also can accredit um, hospice organizations. There's ACHC, and then there's also CHAP, C-H-A-P. Um, those are all accrediting bodies. Um, you know, something else that I think we should look for is there's a very robust program that the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization um, is running called the Quality Connections Program. Hospices can voluntarily participate in this, and what it really is doing, it's a quality and patient-focused program for for hospice and palliative care providers, and it really demonstrates the continuous quality improvement efforts, that, that that's what you're all about. You're looking at, you know, bringing care that is effective and safe and timely, and that you're getting good outcomes with your patients. Um, under that program, the there's something called the rings or pillars. So the program is broken down into four different sections. You can get an education, which is really quality assessment performance improvement focused. They have an application ring or pillar that has to do with practical applications of continuous or quality assessment and performance improvement. They have a measurement ring that really shows that we're doing comprehensive data collection. And this is so that we can benchmark ourselves against other hospices. Mm -hmm. And then there's innovation, which is really sharing knowledge. So um, as of this date, we have earned, uh, Transitions Life Care has earned two of the four rings, and we are off to pursue the other two rings. And I think those things differentiate a hospice. I think... There's a few other things that differentiate hospices, what kind of grief support the hospice provides. Mm. CMS or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid do require that hospices provide grief services to the family of hospice patients after the death, but also to the community at large. And these services are completely non-reimbursed. So, you know, some hospices might not do as robust a job as others because they know they're not getting reimbursed. 
Um, but I have found that at Transitions Life Care, it is just the opposite. I mean, we just recently had um, a camp for kids who have been impacted by the death of someone significant mm-hmm. to them called Camp Bright. Um, we also do Nights of Remembrance, which is a candle lighting type service um, to help remember your loved ones. We do a lot of group and individual counseling. We do a lot of phone calls and mailings to support mm-hmm. patients, um, family members. Um, there's also a program called We Honor Vets, and this is a partnership between NHPCO and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And this really helps um, the hospice recognize that veterans may have very unique needs during their end-of-life end journey. Um, there's different levels of being a partner, and one level means you're going to do this much activity, and then level two means you're doing this much more. You're doing steps one and step two. And Transitions Life Care does, they are a um, level three national partner for the uh, We Honor Veterans program. And we have a Veterans Memorial Garden in the front of our campus in Raleigh, which, you know, family members can. Um, get these wonderful bricks that have the name of their loved one. Sometimes they include what branch of the military they're in, but it's a nice place to reflect and sit and, and just remember your loved one. And it is a veterans memorial. Um, we also recognize vets through a pinning ceremony and flag presentation. Um, and we just prevent, we do participate in quite a bit of vet recognition events throughout the community. Um, there's a, Veterans Day ceremony that happens on campus every Veterans Day. So we just, we really do try to help um, meet the needs that are very unique to veterans. And that's um, how we participate in that program. And we also have a kids program. This is very, very unique to the hospice and palliative um, care industry. A lot of the care we provide is not reimbursed as well, or there's no insurance. Um, and we provide the services to pediatric patients, um, and we have an entire department dedicated to it. We call it the Kids Program. And this really does show a commitment to the community when you're willing to have a program like that that you know is not bringing any money into your agency, and yet is it is that care that is so lacking. And I, I have witnessed firsthand, I've gone out on visits with some of our practitioners to some of our pediatric patients, and it's it's very heartwarming to see the support that the family is feeling, you know, the parents uh, would be at the visits and really tell us what a difference we're making in their child's life. So those are some things I think really differentiate one hospice from another. Oh, kids program. That is, that is uh, so hard and um, very grateful for all of our providers and especially those that help manage uh, that population and, and their families. It's got to be tough. I, I actually attended Camp Bright a few weeks ago, the, the kids grief camp, and it was just such a wonderful program that was put on for at no cost for those um, people in our community, children in our community dealing with loss. And um, it was just a wonderful weekend. They were riding horses with capes that represented the people mm-hmm. um, that they they have lost, and um, we did um, different like s- s- baton exercises and relay races, and um, it was just a, a really sweet weekend. And um, I'm, yeah, it was I'm, touching. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be a volunteer in the horseback riding section of it, and it was it was absolutely astounding. Right. These kids that are just struggling and mm-hmm. suffering, and had lost a sibling or a parent, and just to be able to offer something like this a day where they can be together in their grief, 
and yet be kids all at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it was very heartwarming. While we talk about all the family that's involved with hospice and how this is not just a, a benefit for the patient, are there other ways that Transitions in particular uses the family input on hospice services? Absolutely. Um, back in 2019, it was shortly after I um, transplanted from north to south to come to Raleigh. Um, we started a family advisory council at Transitions Life Care. And this council is comprised of family members who have lost a loved one under hospice. Um, Many of the people on the council have also had their loved one under one of our other umbrellas of service, whether it was palliative care or home health. And we really look to these council members to provide their input from a family member's perspective. How would you feel if? And then we, we have met with them and talk to them about, um, we're looking at collecting data on the social determinants of health because there's grant money out there that would help the family, say, for instance, to build a handicap ramp. So in order to do that, we would need to ask very pointed questions, you know, as far as like, what is the household um, income level and that kind of thing. And we, we were feeling a little uncomfortable, like, how would we ask that question? So we asked our family advisory council And they were very good about giving us their honest feedback about when they thought the right time would be to ask that question and how would you ask that question. So we really do um, look at that Family Advisory Council to be a a sounding board for us. Um, The members of the council serve on a two-year term. We meet every quarter for a couple hours. And I'm always looking for people who want to serve on that council. So if anyone is interested, you can please reach out. I'd be very happy to... um, to point them in the right direction. And plus they also helped, um, they provided a lot of input when we first developed our transition service. Um, I would call it a booklet, not a brochure, because it is a very beautifully, graphically appealing booklet that talks all about all the services we provide. And then we go into the service line specific guides. They were instrumental in helping us uh, create those publications. So, and, and that's unique, too, to have a family advisory council. That is. And um, I want to dive in next, to, after a short break, how can someone move on to hospice? And, and now that we've kind of gone through everything that hospice is, how do you move forward now? So um, I would love to hold on to you for one more segment to get there. We will continue our conversation with Nikki Martin, Vice President of Quality and Compliance and Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care, right after this as we continue our show today, all dealing with hospice. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Hey, if you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to head over to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. 
org. I am Jason Kong. Good afternoon to you. I am here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. And uh, we've got a nice segment here planned, and we're going to be talking all about hospice and what to know and what are myths and what are facts, because this can be such a confusing field to navigate, and there is just plenty of misinformation out there and hearsay when it comes to hospice. So we thought we'd get our information from the source here, and we're pleased to have on the show Nikki Martin. Nikki is the Vice President of Quality and Compliance and the Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care. And Mary, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about hospice often, but mm-hmm. uh, as we said, there's just so much misinformation out there. Absolutely. I think for caregivers, you know, a lot of times in your caregiving journey, you're at this point in the road of what next? Uh, and you might feel just overwhelmed and um, I, and knowing that you need to bring in additional help, but not knowing how to do it. So Nikki, how can someone get help with hospice? How do you refer someone to hospice? What are next steps once you reach that point in the road? Great. Um, well, you know, anyone can make a referral to hospice. The patient themselves could call our agency or any hospice agency, or their family can call. I mean, most typically referrals come from hospitals or physicians' offices. Um, facilities like nursing homes and assisted livings will also make referrals. Um, but what hospice will do is check with your physician to see if they agree with the hospice um, option of care. So, you know, you just provide information for your loved one. We'll need like a name and address and date of birth, maybe insurance information, the name of their attending physician or a nurse practitioner, and any other medical information that you think is going to be helpful. Um, And hospice does the rest. We contact the physician. We are going to gather medical records. Maybe if you had been in the hospital recently, we'll gather those records. And then we're going to schedule an admission or an info visit. So an info visit might be, we're looking at the records and we're not quite sure if you're going to qualify for hospice. So we'll do an info visit to get more information. Nikki, what if someone doesn't qualify for hospice? The caregiver has called in, has set up an appointment, someone comes out for an info visit or for an admission, and it's just not quite there yet. Are there other things that you can do to help the caregiver and the patient? Absolutely. Um, we would do an evaluation for maybe palliative care is the right road at this point in time. Um, some, And honestly, some patients are medically appropriate for hospice, but maybe the patient and family are just not there yet in their mind. And that's okay. You know, we will be ready when you're ready. And sometimes the palliative care is a nice bridge to hospice. And it isn't always a bridge to hospice, but sometimes it can be a bridge to hospice. And that keeps medical eyes on you, you know, nurse practitioners making visits um, and really focus on what your what your disease process is and how it affects your day-to-day life and how it impacts the quality of your life. And, and that's oftentimes very helpful for patients and families. That's great. So how much does all of this care cost? It seems expensive. There's a lot of stuff in here that we've been talking about. What, what does it look like? <laughs> yeah, you would think it's going to be the most expensive thing, but I think after paying into Medicare your whole life, <laughs> the, the Medicare hospice benefit is fully paid for. I mean, you, you've put into Medicare your entire life. So it's, at the end, it's nice that you get this care for, for no cost. Um, you know, there's also commercial insurances that cover hospice services, and you would have to check with your insurance carrier to find out if there's a co-payment or a limit on the coverage. And, it, and the nice thing about the hospice 
for a program is that it covers all your nursing visits, your social worker visits, your spiritual care counselor, your aid visits, the doctors and nurse practitioners that may come out to see you, those are also all covered. We also have um, durable medical equipment that may be helpful in the home. That is also paid for by the hospice. Um, we also have medications that are related to why you're coming to hospice. So whatever disease you have, and then any other conditions that happen as a result of your primary diagnosis is what we call it. We will pay for all those medications as long as they're on our formulary. Those respite stays that are also very, very helpful um, in a time of need when a family's just, you know, I can't do this anymore. That's all paid for under the hospice benefit. The four levels of care, that are those are all paid under the hospice benefit. And then the bereavement services. And we also have to remember that Transitions Life Care is never going to turn away a patient because of their inability to pay for care or they're not insured. We take care of all patients regardless of their ability to pay for care. That's amazing. What a great benefit for the community. So, Nikki, a mm-hmm. myth that we hear out in the field is hospice is only for cancer patients. Please tell me this is not true. <laughs> no, it is not true. Over time, I think it's it's um, the pendulum is, I wouldn't say swinging, but cancer does still remain the number one diagnosis for hospice patients, some form of cancer. But then there's other diseases that are chronic and you can have for quite some time, but at there's a point in time when it becomes the terminal phase of that illness. So we're looking at diseases like COPD, congestive heart failure, even Alzheimer's disease. There is a very specific time in that disease process where you are now entering the terminal phase of your illness. Uh, you know, liver failure, kidney failure. There's a lot of disease and illnesses that at one point will now um, progress to where you're in the terminal phase of your illness. That's very helpful. We have just a couple minutes mm-hmm. left, so I have one more question for you. Okay. A lot of people who have experienced hospice with transitions or out in the uh, out in the community ask, how can we give back? If a listener is wanting to give back, how should they go about doing that? Well, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, you can volunteer at Transitions Life Care. You can go to our website to get any details you want. I think one of the most helpful things, too, is that you tell a friend about the good care that your loved one received. Um, I mentioned earlier you can serve on our Family Advisory Council. We do um, prefer that any family members wait until it's already been past one year of the death of their loved one, but we certainly could talk if they have a burning desire to be on the Family Advisory Council. We wouldn't turn them away. Um, Let your physician know how the hospice care was able to help you and your loved one. And then, of course, um, as a nonprofit organization, we do rely on um, philanthropy and donations from the communities that we serve. That does help us be able to provide a kids program. Um, That's pretty much fully funded by philanthropy. So um, you're giving in a financial way does help to provide care to those uninsured and kids and folks who have the need for hospice in uh, in a very meaningful way. Wonderful. And those who are looking to get involved can find more information at transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. I want to thank Nikki Martin, Vice President of Quality and Compliance and Chief Compliance Officer at Transitions Life Care for uh, such an informative session here with you today. 
Nikki, related to all things hospice. We really appreciate your time and for uh, helping educate us and the audience today. Well, thanks for having me, Jason and Mary. We really appreciate it. That'll do it for us today. We're out of time. Don't forget, go to WPTF.com, click on the podcast section, find Aging Matters if you want to catch up on shows, or head over to TransitionsLifeCare.org to find more information about Transitions Life Care. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful weekend. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.